We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Wait, has Tanya Pubasek deleted her insane pledge tweet? Oh, here it is. <laughs> the pledge. From this time forward, I pledge my loyalty to Australia and its people, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights and liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. It's an elegant expression of what it takes to be a good citizen, of the rights we hold and the responsibilities we owe. Patriotism, like mateship, is about solidarity. What? It's about <laughs> what we owe each other as citizens. Patriotism is the knowledge that we're not alone in this life. What? That our neighbours are there to share our struggles. That we have 25 million people in our corner when we need it. To love our country is not to assume it's better than others. Patriots don't need to f- feel superior to feel proud. <laughs> to love our country is not to assume that it's perfect. Patriotism is not above self-reflection and self-improvement. You can be proud of your citizenship and dedicated to progress. You can cherish this nation and want to make it better. You can be a progressive and love your country. I certainly do. That is, you know how they described, uh, <laughs> was it Fraser's uh, platform against Keating in the 1993 election? Oh, what? No, which was the platform that they described as the longest suicide note in history, <laughs> in political history? Because that is pretty much that. Like, <laughs> it's, that. That is the Australian Is that like parties. an Australian Day thing? Yeah, it was yeah. Like okay. tweeted on Australia. I'm really concerned uh, about what like modern Labour Party thinks solidarity is because they always like oh in solidarity, but apparently patriotism is it means, solidarity. It means whatever they want it to mean. <laughs> but I think a lot of people have been wondering like what is the point of Labour left for a long time, uh, especially given that like Labour left basically controls the Queensland Labour Party, and now we have Albanese as uh, opposition leader, and. Increasing power across the entire party. Yeah, and and they come out with stuff like this, which is actually sort of so unhinged that it's sort of to the right of people even like Keating and Hawke. Like, sort of Keating and Hawke did sort of revitalise, you know, so-called Australia Day. But this stuff is so incredibly unhinged. I don't know who put it, but someone mentioned, like, did was this just genuinely, like, Tanya Plibersek just saying, like, like, was this her? Or was this the Labour Party thinking they could put their, like, one of their, like, most softly spoken and probably weakest performing front, front benches uh, to, like, do a nationalistic dog whistle? Mm. Like, why would you choose this? Like, who is this going to appeal to? No one in inner city Sydney that lives in her electorate cares. But I don't think anyone cares. <laughs> no. Like... Well, that's not anything different from anything Labor has ever done. They they fail at appeasing the right, fail at appeasing the left, and just fucking end up in the middle. And you know, and everyone yeah. hates them. I think I, I did see a tweet that was like, "Yes, this is very a very smart move. Um, this is going to like really speak to those voters who, um, you know, they 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 like the idea of patriotism, but not enough to actually vote for the conservative." Like side of politics, <laughs> this is upwards of nine people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like gotta uh, get those voters. Nine votes uh, is a lot of votes. <laughs> <laughs> what I, what, it, like, obviously, this is just like chapter fifty million of Labor long losing, like learning the wrong lessons out of the fed, most recent federal election, and it's such a sort of like Latham thing to assume that like the reason that there are. Uh, disconnected from their sort of working class base is that they haven't been socially conservative enough and like quote unquote patriotic enough as if somehow there's this series of cultural markers that they need to appeal to that will somehow allow them to win back all of these people 
as if it isn't just the fact that they have, you know, like haven't really offered any meaningful platform to improve their li- people's lives in a long, long time. And what's bizarre is like Labour left been like waiting in the wings for ages to be like to take over the party, you know, like, oh, we're just a few people away from really just transforming this country and, and having this transformative economic platform. And this is the stuff they come out with. It's like Albanese's like big environmental platform is abandoning the emissions reduction target, <laughs> which like in and of itself was never really a big transformative policy. But the fact that they ma- he's managed to sort of shift almost to the right of Turnbull on climate policy is pretty amazing. But then this stuff as well, it, it, it actually, it's, it's spectacular. It, it does confirm to me though, one of my pet theories that it's potentially Australian Labor Party will never form government ever again. It's yeah. in their own right. They're certainly not showing any signs of it. They're working very hard at never being in government again. Mm. Uh, like, you know, on a weekend where we had amazing turnouts, uh, like for Invasion Day rallies, like across the country, Albanese and Tanya are trying to do patriotism and nationalism like better than the right can. And everyone's like, no, you two people in particular are quite bad at going to be trying to communicate that nevertheless like never mind that it's just never going to appeal to people yeah and also that as if it's a like you know dave eden friend of the show pointed out that he sees he saw way fewer australia day australia flags and uh uh, events in total yeah yeah on invasion day and uh like it it does seem that it's it's the sort of like it it's not it's not this sort of battleground for the culture war that I think Labor Party think it is, but I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that they're sort of disconnected from reality like that. I think like there's a lot of media like chatter about like, oh, there's a, this whole debate going on. And I think largely the public just like, probably most people just don't care when I, their holiday is. They would just like a holiday. And for everyone else who does care, most people are probably there at the Invasion Day rallies. So this is a zero-sum game for, like, you either change it or you abolish it or whatever. I, I don't get why you I would... I think it's definitely, like, not as... Yeah, like you are saying, the culture was not that harsh. Because I was watching um, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. With, you know, cause we're, you know, I'm <laughs> a bit of a, a, bit of a normie these side. days. <laughs> but they were actually, um, chat, like, had, a, like, Australia Day chat on it. And the consensus was that they should change the date. And it was just, like, a sort of, like, oh, yeah, you know, just sort of makes sense, like... How would you feel? And like these are just n- sort of pretty normy people, mm. you know. You think about who's on that show, having a chat about it, and being actually pretty progressive about it. It's like, okay, well, yeah, seems to be like people have moved past the, you know, point of it being a oh that's a crazy idea. It's like oh yeah, fair, fair enough. I also think with this pledge stuff, um, it just it's such a wild miscalculation because I think I feel like if there's one thing that you would know about. Australians, in so much as we have like like a national character, obviously that's very fragmented and fraught in all different ways. But I feel like just if I'm taking, for instance, the sum total of all the people I've ever door knocked, the vast majority of them would totally cringe at the idea of a pledge. Oh. Like it's very un-Australian to, it's it's just wankery, you know. You're just being a wanker. Like I, I feel like as a you know as a country, um, uh, we just like. Most people just really don't go in for that kind of thing. It's seen as, especially in a, in a moment where there's so much anti-political sentiment, I feel like they're trying to fix it with this like overly earnest, overly like, yeah, in a way it is like very much in the realm of politics, this Pledge of Allegiance 
idea and it doesn't at all connect with what ordinary people Because the last feel. time we would have seen that big patriotism surge would have been Howard, right? Like mm. he's credited for bringing back the big actual Australia Day celebrations. Was that military. not Keating? I think Keating had a big, a reasonable part to play in that as they well. It was introduced back then and the same I with think- Anzac Day, but Howard quite specifically pushed massively yeah, for them to be big cultural markers yeah. of white Australia. But I think we've sort of gone, like that wave's sort of come and gone mm. now and we're like on the sort of downward trend away from that and all the sort of efforts by, because and I don't know if this is just because the political class is more and more inept with every passing year, or they just can't seem to bring it back. Mm. No, the same no, way that really, Howard could. It's really encouraging. And well, there isn't anything to get excited about at the moment. I feel like there's no no good wars. Yeah, <laughs> no good wars. No big like state projects. No real feeling of like okay, if we. Yeah, if we love or pledge allegiance to the country, like, what does that even mean? I feel like there's a real lack of emotional... Or, no, a lack of um, material circumstances to relate that emotion to. And the it's amazing also how authoritarian the politics are of this pledge. Uh, like, no, it's not just like, oh, I love my country and that's the pledge and... You know, <laughs> that would be a good plan. Well, you know, <laughs> no. well, I don't think it's so. It's like but, binding yeah. an everlasting loyalty to the state. It's yeah, but no, but it, yeah, but there's like the last bit, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. Mm. You know, I suppose you know, it's almost obvious to say, but maybe it needs to be said. It's like you were meant to be the representative of the labor movement, mm. like. The only reason the Labor Party exists is because they broke a whole bunch of labor laws. Like, <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's you know similar to Palaszczuk going and ban you know introducing all of those anti-protest laws and dangerous devices laws. Uh, and you you I almost couldn't imagine Scott Morrison doing something like this. Like, I, or maybe I could, but it's like it's remarkable that managed that Plibersek, this sort of like darling of Labor left, has managed to lurch to the right mm. of the Liberal Party when it comes to like sort of authoritarian pledges and uh, calls to sort of obey the law. I feel like it's not something Scott Morrison would do, but it's something like some fringe far right lunatic in the coalition would do, and it would get airtime for a couple of days, and everyone would forget about it. Well, isn't that the thing about uh, the Australian Labor Party, like? For so far for being like the left wing of Australian politics, they are the ones who have actually consistently brought in all the most right wing shifts to the political and economic mm. sphere. Like they, you know, you had the Hawke and Keating um, privatization. I believe we, we may have talked about these. Yeah, yeah. Things so like glossing over that, but before. like it's always the Labor Party. It's not really the Liberals creating those um, completely paradigm shifting. I, I think so. I mean, I think you probably the direct reference says the Accord was. It's probably a pretty particularly unique period in that. The Labor Party's sort of been at sea since then. It hasn't been necessarily major economic or neoliberal reforms. It's just sort of been slowly uh, disintegrating as a party uh, with no real, uh, you know, coherent platform to speak of or any way of describing what a coherent ideology would exist around uh, the Australian Labor Party or Queensland Labor Party or any Labor Party at the moment. But I just feel like this plebiscite pledge stuff is, like, fucking pretty much guaranteeing... It's shit like this that I just m- makes me think there's no fucking way they're going to win the next election. I feel like the Liberal Party may have like a better model internally of actually wielding the power that they hold in a lot of those conservatizing ways. Like they just use it as a way of making their ideology more pervasive throughout society, where the Labor Party needs to performatively um, like make sure that they're still appealing to this imaginary right wing that they think they can win over. 
um, as opposed to offering alternatives. So like they're constantly like, hey, please like us. We've got this like really terrible thing. Please, <laughs> please give us your vote. Where the, the Liberal Party just like forges ahead with like right wing um, ideology and is just able to just drag the party along, uh, mm. the like the country along. Where well, they're not trying to play both sides at once, I guess. Mm. They just. I guess they're honest with it, which is like, yeah. they're just honest with the power they wield and they're just like, we have power. Our whole thing is about wielding and using power. Because I feel like the Labour Party still thinks there's, there is a centre road, a centre mm. path that they can take. Um, patently untrue. But I realise that uh, we still haven't introduced ourselves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got on our first like, extended Classic. rant about the Labour Party of the Year without even <laughs> <laughs> checking in. Um, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't start yeah, exactly. with it, didn't we? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Joe. Nice to be back. Uh, on the cast after a break over the, the summer holidays. I'm Mark. I'm Callum. And Max. Hmm. All right. Well, um, yeah, it's our first show of the year and I think we've got a fair bit to talk about. Um, we're going to touch on the bushfires, obviously, on everyone's minds for the past month or so. Um, I mean, that's pretty depressing, uh, but we're going to check in with that. And then we're going to talk a bit about our boy Bernard Sanders leading in Iowa, but anyway, I'm going to save that later. So we're um, going to be uh, feeling the burn in two different ways with oh. the bushfires <laughs> and oh. the right, I'm gonna, no. I'm going to call the show "Feeling the Burn." <laughs> <laughs> and then I think if we've got time, we'll check back in with our favourite columnist Bridget Delaney. <laughs> so we've got Bernie bushfires and Bridget is basically the the show plan for today. Oof, the three Bs. Three Bs. Well, it's really four because. The Tanya stuff is a lot of bullshit. Yeah, so. okay. <laughs> <Four beats>. Bullshit. <laughs> Bushfires. And now we, I think, Callum, you suggested that we begin with our, um, well, you put it in the show plan as New Year's Revolution, but I'm going to say you probably meant New Year's Resolution. <laughs> yeah, that was a stupid joke. Um, <laughs> well, I was just, yeah, um, so I was just thinking we could all whip around to our New Year's resolutions, you know, for the show we could probably start with, you know, do a cast every <laughs> I said two weeks. Oh, no, please cut month. this, cut it, cut it. <laughs> yeah, you've got two weeks, I crossed that out and put month because I don't want to overpromise. At least a month, how's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One to two times a month. Um, all right, well, yeah, mine was, uh, you know, I've been getting into lead climbing recently, and so I've got a couple of climbs at KP I want to get ticked off. Wedding Crashes, which is a 21, and Brisbane Bitters, which is 24, so I want to get them done by April. So Wow, there's yeah. a climb called Wedding Crashes. Yeah, it's actually really fun because it's one of the only climbs. Because the thing with KP, it's really ledgy because it was a quarry, so good chance to break your legs a lot. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, but Wedding Crashes is one of the few climbs that's slightly overhung. So when you fall... You're not gonna like land on a ledge. You're just gonna fall out into space more. So yeah, right. it's a lot more fun, a lot more feels safer, and it's also like super fun because it starts off, you know, real crimpy technical holds, trying to, and then you try to like pull up onto this big thing, and then at the at the top it gets a bit ledgy. But yeah, it's like a super fun. And I fell like nine meters off it when I first tried to do it because I just <laughs> just fucking failed. But like it fell down halfway and like hit my belayer as he was coming up. Holy shit. Um, but yeah, I've still got to get that one in one go and there's another one in Brisbane Bitters. But anyway, Oof. too that's much of a rant on That's climbing. mostly incomprehensible to me, but I wish you luck. <laughs> um, my personal news resolution, I didn't make one really. Um, the one I put down was to vote for Bernie Sanders in the California primary. Uh, By doing some citizenship fraud. I'm going to do citizenship fraud. <laughs> I'm going to do overseas vote interference. Um, no, I actually was born um, in Los Angeles, which is a nice little way to interfere in a foreign election for the rest of my life. I do have the right to vote over there. Um, 
So I sent out my uh, little pack to, they'll, they're going to mail me my ballot and then I fill it out and send it back. That'll be exciting. Um, I think that's my only resolution so far. Um, mine was mostly just to like actually get some work done in that I um, have to get funding for a PhD that I hopefully I will be starting mid-year, but most of the resolution is just getting applications in and getting proposals done. And getting swole. Yeah, and getting swole. <laughs> get swole, get funding. <laughs> yeah, swole to funky beats is most of my resolution. <laughs> Damn. Uh, I don't really have one. Uh, so mine is pay no mind to fucking idiots. Okay. Just, there's going to be a lot of fucking idiots that you have to deal with this year. And well, this is going to make some really boring no mind. Floodcast, pay right? no mind. What was that? It's going to take some like really boring floodcasts then because I think that's most of our content. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we did pay a lot of mind to some idiots just before. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Failing we'll already. We'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> the news resolutions are there to be fail. <laughs> All right. So, word about these bushfires. I... I don't know, I was sort of reading into it and like, you know, a lot of stuff's already sort of been said about them. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, I put a couple of articles, one by like Bridget Delaney, you know, it turns out <laughs> she's written a bushfire article, of so best she of has, both yeah. worlds. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like Van Batten was there, but I don't know, I just sort of like got bored with reading. Cause they're, and they're all just really mild takes. I don't even know what Vans was about. It was like the bushfire crisis has shown a way forward for Australia and revealed who we truly are. Like, I don't even know what the what? fuck. Does it? What does it? What does it reveal? I don't even think... <laughs> it sounds like, like a lot like... I don't pledge. even want to read it again. I remember it was just so boring. It was literally nothing. A really just thoughtless stink piece. Um, and then... It was... The bushfires were a lot... It was like a rolling crisis where it was like... It became... It was a really uh, intense... Mo- like, lots of small intense moments in which you like would hear all this news and then you would get really agitated about it and then the slow malaise of uh, Australian politics just like washed any like real energy out of like a response to it like even like, it's sort ma- of died away hasn't it yeah, well, yeah the main response so. was ended up being sack ScoMo and writing to the queen oh, to yeah. sack squ- uh, ScoMo <laughs> which is like oh, what kind of galaxy brain do you have to be in to think that any way like just appeal to the queen to sack the prime minister did you guys some natural disasters did you like, see that friendly Geordie's video that I was the didn't whole see it but oh I my did god I actually watched it and I was like what the fuck it's that was particularly bleak, given the history of um, governor generals and queens sacking prime ministers mm. uh, what, in Australia. What, what, do they, what do these people think will happen if they sack ScoMo? Like, they will just get someone else in. We'll get Peter Dutton. We'll get Peter Dutton as prime minister. Who will be as bad, if not worse. <laughs> and even if you remove the Liberal government, you would get a Labor government. Which, as like I suppose I pointed out on Twitter, we have a preview of how a Labor government deal, de- deals with the bushfires, which is announcing that they're going to... like approve a bunch more like metric shit ton of more coal mines in the Galilee Basin done shit all to give any more funding to uh, the Rural Fire Service or the Queensland uh, Fire Service uh, and uh, seems to be like essentially otherwise like melting away into the background and doing just as much as they accused Scott Morrison of doing which was nothing or being actively harmful. Which is like mildly concerning because there are like a bunch of very easy things to announce and talk about. There could be a way of like dealing with the the bushfire or even a way to just like respond to people's concerns. So like my family experienced like having to be evacuated um, and the fires are uncoverable uh, near Yapoon. Uh, and just I think a lot of people just had a lot of anxiety, not only during but afterwards, just about what the future held. Mm. And it would... It would be so easy to show leadership in a time like that where it's just like, here's our response. It's has empathy and it's effective and it's 
like you can still stand above like playing politics in moments like that if you want to, but they just didn't want to appear to be in any way engaged in like the response, which was super weird. No, and I mean, you know, like there was a sort of hard to capture the national feeling, but like the, obviously the heroic efforts of the rural fire service volunteers and things like that, but also this sort of like pervading sense of hopelessness as if like there was not really, I, you know, you saw it, I like seep through everywhere actually. There's just sort of general feeling that there was nothing uh, that we could do and that like, you know, climate, we were finally uh, suffering the effects the of, uh, uh, or we had already, but certainly it was more for uh, in front of mind, the effects of climate, destructive effects of climate change. And, you know, there was no real progressive movement to speak of capable of turning this sort of like giant Titanic around. And uh, it is really interesting because it's, uh, it says to me a few things like, one of them is, you know, the, like the NGO and section NGO sec, uh, movement and sec, section of the Greens have been like, basically like willing a climate emergency into reality. Like, you know, this was the like most recent election was the uh, climate election, and even though it clearly wasn't, uh, you know, like the, there was a lot of other issues that people cared about. Uh, finally, sort of, they've got the circumstances in which you could reasonably claim there might be a climate emergency. Uh, era of national politics and they no no one it seems on the national stage from any section of politics seem to have any fucking idea what to do about it like including (laughs) any of the engos which uh seem completely lost like i can't think of a single thing that they did or said Uh, you're actually 100 percent right i can not remember seeing anything from any real ngo like any ngo about this at all like and you're 100% right. It's like, this is sort of could have been the moment, like in their minds, the moment to like, you know, this is a big trigger moment where we can build our, you know, mobilize, but nothing. It was like, what, the one demo that last week or something at King George the, Square? The, the, the demos were being run by the fucking trots. Like, oh, it's not even the NGOs then. <laughs> yeah, but also, that you, like, to be frank as well, like how many rallies, what is like on the sixth rally, we're going to like... Institute Democratic Socialism and Save the World, <laughs> like Mega- sort of the Mega- eighth rally. No, it's like, a mega door knock. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. And uh, the other thing that I'm sure we all experienced, like we all door knock, and one of the things that really um, became clear is that no one was bringing it up as an issue or has brought it up really as an issue over the last few weeks, partly because it's not seen as, you know, I think it's partly it's because it's not seen as a political issue, but partly because I think that feeling of hopelessness or feeling of not being able to do much about it pervades all of you know, I think is quite pervasive. And that's precisely because I don't think we have as yet a large-scale political movement capable of wielding willpower in politics or society. And that doesn't start by, like, you know, saying a few frantic things about bushfires, but it, as always, and nothing has changed in this, in this, uh, from this perspective, that it's like the slow, hard work of bu- of building class solidarity and building large-scale ma- um, large mass political party based around a transformative platform that speaks to the things that change, improve people's daily material lives uh, and connects that with a broader uh, class solidarity across Australia and across the world. And, like, uh, I just it's been particularly frustrating and most understandable to be like, we've got to do something as if there's something immediately that we could do that it hasn't, this hasn't changed the fact that uh, when people are presented with problems and they don't have the power to fix them, they'll just decide to 
put up with it and live with it. Someone else is supposed to come up with the solution. Um, people are like willing to engage on solutions, but they're like, no, no, I don't have the ability to do anything about this. You guys are supposed to do something about this. That's actually exactly like in Bridget's article. So her, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, her, the title is This Apocalyptic Australian Summer is Our Sandy Hook Moment. If we don't take climate action now, we never will. So basically the pr- her premise is that, you know, like uh, at you know Sandy Hook in America when all those preschools were killed, it was like, oh, this is when we can, you know, we either can, if we can't enact good gun control now, it'll never happen. It never happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where, and it's sort of like now... She's saying um, if we never don't invoke good climate policy, it never will. But it's like the last paragraph in this is, you know, she says, this is our Sandy Hook moment. We must seize it and demand an effective climate policy or nature will be forced to teach us her hard lessons. It's like, who's we? Who's us? You? Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. the Labor Party? Who the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? And yeah. also who's, I think one of the big problems um, is that there isn't a clearly defined enemy. Like we don't, people are so obviously worried and upset about these fires but they don't have anywhere to direct their anger to except and and the best they've been able to come up with or the best like certain um organizations have been able to come up with is sack scomo this kind of technocratic fix um and getting angry at scomo for being on holiday in hawaii or whatever which is fair enough but it's like he's not the actual he's not the whole problem um you know or even like a he's a fraction you know like i wouldn't even say he is anything at all the problem really like i mean as a representative of the political class but i think as we were talking about before there the analysis doesn't extend to that it's just him as an individual yeah um but also we're not talking about the fossil fuel companies like no one's except the the good old queensland greens has been talking about putting a levy on um on fossil fuel companies to pay for greater uh, more funding for the fire service and disaster relief but yeah i haven't seen anyone else really talking about the fact that they are what has got us into this mess no and talking there's big fossil fuel corporations and there's sort of like broader political class and more broadly the sort of like economic and political system that uh has uh caused this is obviously not something that it appears that anyone in national politics wants to do uh and you know one of the uh uh, more useful things about that is that then it gets to tie the sort of like declining wages and unemployment and raising levels of personal debt and higher rates of stress and overwork and the sort of like general uh, sort of like uh, dominating and depressed sort of depressing condition of neoliberal or post neoliberal capitalism in Australia and the effects that it has on people. Uh, and if you are able to connect those two things uh, and with a common enemy, then you are maybe that provides you the ideological basis to start building a movement. But the reality is that I would say that the vast majority of the NGOs and all of those sort of like Labor Party and self-described progressive movements don't actually don't I don't want that. Don't see it as a priority, and as a result, are never going to build any sort of movement capable of doing that. Um, no, for them, it's just a political process critique it's not the right people in charge it's not the right policies being implemented it's not the fact that there's fundamentally broken things happening in like society no exactly and uh, but you know i think there is a light at the end of the tunnel and uh it really is just getting to work like and by getting to work it's you know uh certainly the strategies that we like to pursue around building a large-scale electoral movement based on that transformative platform getting people involved in that uh 
you know, going to people's doors and letting them know that there is a political alternative and encouraging them to get behind that. And it's not just about like sacking ScoMo. It's about like eliminating the entire political class and replacing them uh, with the power of ordinary people uh, and giving people the sense of wins as well, like that their collective action can lead to genuine victories, whether that be in the electoral sphere or more broadly. Mm. Uh, and that's what the, the, the just experiencing the bushfires things was like. Wow, literally nothing has changed. Like, and Liam said that in his flood article as well. And uh, it for me, it was just watching all of that. It was like the bushfires changed nothing. Like, if anything, maybe it gives a sense of like urgency around our political projects. But there really does not change anything about our strategy or like what we're saying and what we need to say. Uh, and that that for me is the sort of like takeaway lesson in a way i think the one yeah and in terms of what's you know going forward from these bushfires because we're sort of in the we've gone through the you know big media oh look you know this is a big moment sort of thing and now mm. we've just stopped hearing about it and i think what's probably going to start happening now is and again i don't know if the current government is like um gonna be what's the word the opposite of inept enough to... <laughs> ept. Yeah, ept. <laughs> enough to, like, do this, but this is, like, the disaster capitalism phase because I've yeah. been sort of seeing a few things pop up. I don't know if anyone's, you know, read Naomi Klein's classic Shock Doctrine book, but, um, you know, on a scale of disaster this big, we're probably going to see, you know, a gradual implementation of just more really terrible neoliberal policies i mean some things i mean you know one thing that pops into my mind is just further privatization of like disaster relief mm-hmm. you know yeah, yeah. like the whole well, i was looking at this thing where how, looking at the millions of dollars like tens and tens of millions of dollars that have been donated to like the red cross and fucking salvo army and an absolute like fraction of that has actually been used for bushfire relief mm. like and and it and not only for like reconstruction but just Grant like it's no longer the government giving grants to um, people for it. It's like you have to apply to the Salvation Army to get mm. your disaster relief grant. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one privatization. Um, I think another thing that's probably going to be interesting will be like insurance. Yeah, a lot of people are underinsured for this because or not insured at all because they can't afford the premium. Yeah, because a lot of these people. Or if they are insured, the insurance company comes up with a loophole so they don't have to pay. Yeah, because a lot of these places that got wiped out were like poor working class regional communities who just couldn't afford to be properly insured. Or in in the case that they were insured, because when you rebuild this, all these different rules and regulations you have to adhere to, it's just too expensive. Your insurance won't cover it. Um, so there's this big thing about yeah, just uh, there may be just this abandonment of these communities because people just can't afford to go back there. And I think that also will lead to like the, like the question of where do they go? It's kind of like our first climate refugees internally to the country. And then you've got, you know, the, the problem of, as I think you mentioned in the show notes, Callum, like that people will, you know, either can't live in bushfire prone areas or some people are saying that they shouldn't be allowed to live in bushfire prone areas, but rents and real estate in, in a city is so expensive that, you know, for many of these people, they just won't be able to afford it. So there's, yeah, all of these class tensions coming to a, an intersection through that. Yeah, and then, like, again, as always, uh, uh, the private market and large sections, like powerful, you know, representatives of Australian capitalism always end up, 
you know, like creating these contradictions around where people live and their safety and things like that. Like property developers, for instance, uh, building a lot of homes into these, you know, in greenfield sites out near like bush areas, around, especially out mm. west in Queensland, but I'm sure in New South Wales as well. That well, have very big fires were those really shocking pictures were emerging from. They were holiday towns, which were like are were increasing in like uh, property prices and were a popular holiday destination for a really long time and are increasingly so because everyone lives in cities that suck and you want to go on a holiday to somewhere nice but these places surrounded by bushland are being sold as these idyllic out of the way places which are now just all catching fire but they're not no, their developers are refusing to build the homes to a high set like a uh, fire safety standard because it's really expensive and it adds premiums and so they're building these basically these match stick boxes in the around this uh, bush and the cheapest way they can improve the regulate like improve their fire safety standards is by basically just clear felling enormous sections of land around these houses which as any expert will tell you is not fuel so fuel is like the small shrub and like grass uh, less than a couple of millimeters thick basically and that's the stuff that you need to backburn and that's very important but actually trees large gum trees etc often act as fire shields to stop embers from moving off from a fire front. They actually create microclimates around homes that keep them cool. And it's often when the homes burn and they burn at like three or four times the temperature of a tree. And this is getting technical. But it's interesting that, you know, like, um, again, people are becoming the victim of this like profit first for a few large developers who no doubt have donated to a lot of the political parties. Uh, and, you know, you see this now just like scars on the landscape. And read the, you're exactly right, Callum, around the like disaster capitalism stuff. And it's infuriating that, uh, you know, obviously we're doing it in Queensland with the Queensland Greens around identifying enemies. But like the amount of money sloshing around in all of these like gas and coal corporations, like Chevron has made like f- something like four and a half or six and a half billion dollars last uh, last financial year and paid zero dollars in tax like literally zero shell did the same like there's like i think there's something like 10 or 15 coal and gas corporations operating in australia have collectively made like 50 billion dollars in revenue haven't paid a single dollar in tax and i wouldn't be surprised if those same companies you know try to do resource grabs off the back of this like oh look at all this dead land now oh we'll just go well you already see it as logging companies saying we should be able to go in there to clear that out to make sure there's not more fires because Oh, there's suddenly open land to log now. And that's power. You know, like, that that's genuine power, that they are able to do that and get away with that. Uh, and until we build a political movement capable of taking that on, then, like, you know, and the strategies that lead to that, which is building large collective people's groups of people that recognise they have more in interest, like common material interests, then divide them, and that all of our interests are opposed to those small sections of large corporations and political class who are destroying our lives. Uh, it's frustrating to watch sections of the left go off in weird and wonderful directions. I think as well, um, another thing I wanted to mention about the um, climate refugee issue or bushfire refu- internal sort of internal refugee issue is something um that naomi klein mentioned i think it was when she was on chapo last a uh, couple months ago um which is the question of like resources to help these people um once they've been um displaced so i think she was talking about the california wildfires where you know whole towns burned so you know all of these hundreds and hundreds of people had to go to the next town over 
and at first they were you know that the town was like super welcoming to them and tried their best and they did you know continue to try their best but the the thing was there just wasn't enough resources there wasn't enough housing um you know like food like there's it's set up for a town of a couple of hundred people and suddenly their population has doubled or tripled um and so you you end up with a situation where people like there's tension and there's discord and the whole the idea that like humans can live in harmony and, and share resources gets like people stop believing in that but that's not a natural thing that's happened because of a material um shortage of of resources and infrastructure that is dictated by people with power and it just made me think of the the van badham article that you linked to Callum, which says the bushfire crisis has shown a way forward for australia and revealed who we truly are which is um you know not going to read it out but i think she's She's talking about the uh, the collective selflessness that's come to define Australians through this crisis, and to me that kind of hokum stuff is is really unhelpful because it just denies these yeah these material realities that we're going to have to reckon with um, if you know these kind of things continue. Is that it's not just at the moment of crisis, but it's afterwards providing for people who've been displaced and um, looking at you know how we can make sure it doesn't happen again is a structural problem, not just like one of us being really selfless and nice people. It's how you build the collective response. And then there is like a, not saying to take advantage of people who have experienced uh, bushfires, but there is space there to actually show a way to build solidarity and build um, like community with people, not just because they've experienced bushfire, but outside of that, there is a lot of space there that can be used to build that kind of thing without pretending mm. that it naturally exists because a, a fire has gone through. Like we yeah. don't need a disaster in order to bring people together. Like there's a lot of better ways to do this that would likely prevent a lot of these disasters from happening and hurting people. Uh, like- it's just the, the only way that we're allowed to respond in unity and with um, like broad action is in response to disaster nowadays. Yeah. Or like, you know, using that as a, a way to make, critiques that I think many of people on the progressive side of politics um, have been or should have been making for some time, like talking about, you know, the fact that, that rent is too high to for, um, you know, a lot of people to resettle in cities or, or the fact that food is so expensive because of climate shocks. And so, you know, a lot of, I think that's one of the other things that you mentioned, Callum, um, is that uh, food prices are going up. They're predicted to go up by 50% yeah, because of the bushfires. Right. And so, yeah, there is opportunity there, um, but... And, you know, in terms of dealing with crisis as well as, as if, you know, like, exactly draw around that sort of, like, lack of material support, you know, there's not... We've already got, like, probably one in five people or more than that now, I'd say, you know, one or two mortgage or rental payments away from default or it's certainly in severe housing stress. You've got, like, a social housing waiting list that's, like, you know, almost 40,000 people long now just in Queensland alone and hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and probably closer to a million once you account for all the people who don't apply because they know they can't get a home. The sort of quiet desperation of being heavily indebted while your wage is stagnating and you're trying to cover all the expenses that you need to cover to keep your children in a good life. And as you said, Joe, not being able to afford to move closer to the city where all of the... um, where all of the services and amenities are and the dual crisis of overwork and underwork. Uh, and all of those are in, the, in and of themselves crises, but they're crises that have been going on for so long uh, that they've now melded into the background and they're just another one of the realities that people have to put up with. And that's very, for me, it's like the bushfires are kicking off now and they'll probably get worse over the next few years. And it shows that just like declaring this as a crisis, saying, oh, is it an amazing 
that like, oh, we've showed this selflessness, etc., but not providing any long-term political strategy for building power and overcoming that. Who's to say that then the bushfires won't become just like the uh, homelessness crisis or housing stress crisis or overwork crisis? It'll just be another thing that kills people, that bubbles away in the background, uh, that eventually just becomes another normal part of life. Uh, and I don't suggest that that will happen. I'm just saying that the strategies of holding rallies about it or like um, all of this like weird like thing of... Uh, the other thing I find about that self stuff is it's like where's the rage about the mm. th- that against the people who did this um, against those big corporations and political class, um, but yeah, I'm I'm optimistic despite all of that that I think we are able there is possibilities to do that not least for people like our boy Bernard in the United States. Shall we switch gear to, to oh, Bernard? I want to one more thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one more thing. One more thing is just like particularly people who've lived in regional areas, you would see it a lot is. Um, one is just how um, like I think people have this like, imagery of like houses and then bush uh, but a lot of regional areas one is just so heavily integrated that and it's the climate out there at the moment is so different to what is like most of my experience of my entire life it is so dry places that I've seen always seen ferns growing dead like it's a total climate change the environmental degradation in these areas is like sur- it's, it's very apparent like why this this crisis happened as opposed to like, it wasn't just a freak thing to happen. Um, but one of the things in regional areas you often see is um, like the rural fireys, like fundraising. And that's one of those things where it's a direct uh, like example of political pressure saying, uh, sorry, like political class saying that they don't want to contribute to the defense or like to the protection of people's homes. It's like, no, no, you need to fundraise to protect your own homes and protect your community from a disaster like a bushfire. Yeah, it's a classic sort of neoliberal move, right? Like outsourcing the work of the state to small community organisations and cloaking it in a nice little feel-good package. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was spectacularly in the same... I was pretty much around the same time as like ABC Brisbane was running this fundraiser for the Rural Fire Service. Uh, the like trad was getting was like there's an article about trad's like voluntary royalties fund you know like <laughs> mining corporations oh, how can much like it, how much did it raise just to remind me yeah yeah uh, Z- literally zero dollars surprise yeah, surprise it would and have I was like, wow, it was like you know it was like one hand it was like the Queensland government was like oh we have no money more money to give to the fire service or you know to help compensation etc but and the other time it's like zero dollars in our voluntary mining fund <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just one of those things where it just pushes all of this cost and risk onto regional communities to try and desperately support themselves and compete for grants for their own trucks and their own water supplies. Mm. Um, like the where I'm from, um, a stockyard point, uh, the Royal Fire Service there has we had to fundraise amongst the local community to get them water tanks at at the. Uh, the fire is like shed. Like, there was no money. And so the whole community is like, these guys need water at least at the shed in order to make sure that one, the trucks are working and two, the guys working there have water to drink. Like it just is being put onto these people. And that's why I guess like the disaster capitalism stuff is not necessarily about like coming in and taking over, but it's also just the slow degrade of community services and putting that more and more onto people. Because mm. these, you know, these guys are like totally stressed out. They don't have enough time to take off work anymore they can't afford to take it off because and that's where it's just yeah yeah and demonstrating that that is the result of a political choice where the ghouls in the labor party 
uh, and their lackeys have decided that they'd rather subject countless people to terrible suffering and desperation rather than go after the people uh, and the large corporations uh, for whom they are in bed with. And it almost is as simple as that in some ways. And they they make that choice. And every time you see a Labour politician, in particular, but also a Liberal and National politician, crying crocodile tears about any of this fucking stuff, know that they sit in the in the sort of halls of power and make these choices all the fucking time. Yeah, every time you vote for a budget that isn't paying for all this stuff, yeah. <laughs> like that you're making a choice that you don't think this is important. No, they don't. They fucking don't. And neither of... Uh, one thing at least, having watched this, is surely this deals more so than ever with the uh, question of whether or not the Labour Party is the progressive movement that's going to save us, especially starting with the pledge and ending with this. Fucking hell. Well, I think, yeah, we. <laughs> I, I do want to switch gear to something more hopeful before we finish <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> this has been a bleak episode so far, but 2020 has one gigantic bright spot, uh, which is... Well, ne- also the state election and oh, the council <laughs> election this year. I think, to look, to finish on a positive point about this, uh, is that we do have in Queensland an opportunity this year to really strike a blow against the representatives of the mining corporations in Queensland, the Queensland Labor Party. Uh, and uh, how often do you get an opportunity to do something like that, I think? And the pitch I would make is get involved with the Queensland Greens uh, in this coming election because the platform we'll be taking and the movements that we're running in you know, seats across Queensland, I think, uh, will be on an unprecedentedly progressive platform with a bunch of brilliant organisers. And the victories we win here could provide the basis to build something, the sort of movement that we've been talking about this last little bit. Okay. Can I talk about Bernie now? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've been very excited the past couple of days um, watching some polls come in from Iowa. Um, If you're not as brain damaged as us and follow follow US politics obsessively, Iowa is the first... um, not a, well, not technically a primary, but it's yeah uh, the first kind of competition between the candidates. Uh, and Bernie's in the lead. Oh my god, it's it's happening. Can I um, hope again? <laughs> yeah, I, I said uh, I would never hope again <laughs> after the unfortunate events of late last year. But um, yeah, my my boy Bernard and his his uh, healthy new baboon heart are going to carry me through this year. Uh, so there's been two polls in the last couple of days that show Bernie in the lead. Um, the most recent one that came out, I think, today is the Iowa Emerson College slash 7 News poll. I'm assuming that's not our 7 News, but a different 7 News. Um, shows Bernie on 30%, Biden on 21%, Klobuchar 13%, Warren 11%, Bouges 10%, <laughs> Steyer 5%, Yang 5%, and Max's girlfriend on 5%. Oh, <laughs> I just think that, you know, she's an honest character. <laughs> Wasn't she CIA... At some point, what? No, no. Uh, she was. A, uh, she was in the Marines. She was. Oh, a, you okay. can say a lot about her, but being in the CIA is pr- probably definitely not one of them. Am I confusing <laughs> her with the rat face? Yeah, yeah, ratty Buttigieg, boy. Ratty You're boy. confusing with yeah, ratty boy okay. and judge, butter judge. Yeah, um, butter judge. Uh, yeah. No, he I just like his name. How you pronounce his name multiple times every time he's run for an election, just to figure out what was the best way to get like the most. He he like focus grouped how to say his name. <laughs> uh, look, I just you know like. All I'm going to say about Tulsi is she's one of the only ones that's been loyal to Bernie the whole time. She fucking backs him every single time that like the uh, all of the sort of like awful liberals in the United States go after him. And the other that's poll, true. the New York Times Siena College poll, a couple of days ago shows Bernie 25, um, Mayo Pete 18, Sleepy Joe 17, Lion Liz 15, Amy Klobuchar 8, and some other people on lower numbers I didn't look at. So there's a lot of like variation. The interesting thing about those two polls is there's tons of variation between 
um, like Bernie's pretty clearly in the lead in both of them. But then after that, like, you know, one has has Bourget in uh, fifth place and the other one has him in second place. And like then Amy Klobuchar and then Amy Klobuchar as well as in fifth and one and second and the other. So I don't know, it's, it might, it'll be very interesting to see like who actually doesn't clear 15% because anyone who doesn't clear 15%, um, they're out basically and, and all of their people who have essentially voted for them get the chance to change their vote to somebody else. Um, so yeah, we could be seeing like at least maybe Klobuchar, Warren or Bujdzic knocked out in this round. And even then, and a bunch of the polling has included um, second choices for mm. the considered the bottom tier candidates. Yeah, um, their second choices amongst the top four, um, all really showing like like a very mixed response, but still positive for Bernie as well. Mm. And I think the overall thing is that all these polls have like a ton of variability between them, but the overall trend has been a massive climb for Bernard. Yeah, um, showing that he's like definitely like moving in a direction which is really positive. Um, and he's leading in a bunch of national polls too. Or recently mm. there was one that got a lot of, I can't remember the exact numbers, but yeah, he's, he's, it's happening. It's all happening. And he, also the interesting thing um, has been a few polls that ask people um, who they vote for, like, you know, trying to see which Democratic candidate beats Trump. And in a lot of those, he's been beating Trump. Um, which is not surprising. Like, no, no. I, I feel like that's been talked about for years. We've been saying this for a long time. Bernie would have won. Uh, but, you know, I, I reckon he's going to do it. <laughs> and this is after he's survived the ruthless attack from the Warren camp mm. around um, seeming seeming like basically lying and saying that in a private conversation, Warren, Bernie told Warren that he didn't believe a woman could run for president uh, in the lead up to the 20... This primary? Yeah, this primary. And... You know, this is in the context of Bernie in the 80s saying that he thought a woman could become president and in 2016 attempting to, uh, like, recruit Warren to run for the presidency and only running himself when Warren refused and backed Hillary Clinton. So that to me is amazing. Like, I think I think it's one of the best signs ever when, like, an attempted woke attack does not gain ground because Corbyn just was continually getting... Once they found out that they could go him on supposed anti-Semitism then he just never got out of that quagmire. Like, it was it was rough. And so has I this fizzled out already, the Liz thing? Yeah, it pretty much has. What it, thing, sorry? In fact, it looks... Well, it He's looks just like it's pointing. Made, sorry. Uh, <laughs> this poll. Uh, it looks like most of it's, like, just gone... It has had no effect. Um, yeah. On, and so yeah, that... Yeah, can't amend the Warren-Bernie thing. Yeah, that's, that fizzled out and also, went, like, we seem to backfire. Like, her poll numbers have gone down since then. So, yeah, I was a little worried that... Bernie was going to get attacked on various things. Um, sexism is the easy thing to go for because he's a man and then there are women in the race and that's very sexist of him to run against them. But uh, yeah, so far all signs are good and looking like it's not going to stick and that makes me feel very happy. Well, I think one of the best indicators of just how well Bernie is is how afraid Trump and all his supporters yeah. are of Bernie. Uh, like there was uh, a bunch recently of like Trump campaign staff going after Bernie uh, reporting, like reporters reporting on Bernie, um, they had a bunch of like Trump campaign staff like replying to them with like, oh no, that's not many people. Trump had 10,000 that year and... Being reply guys. Massive reply guys against uh, like, yeah. There was some leaked audio as well um, of Trump saying that 
in 2016, he thought he was like, oh, I was really scared that Clinton was going to choose Bernie as her VP. And he, he's the one guy I didn't want her to pick because he's, he's good on trade. He's a big trade guy. Big trade guy. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, I don't know. This is also the kind of bizarre tweets from Trump about, like, defending Bernie against, like, you know, like, na- nasty Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi yeah. is, like, rigging. They're rigging it against Bernie Sanders yeah. again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that bizarre tweet. And also in that rally where he was like, um, you know, he's like, I don't really know Bernie that well. Very, <clears throat> very, he seems like a very mean guy, very nasty guy. <laughs> but he would never say that a woman couldn't run for president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, who knows what's going on in his head. But it was, Well, next we know Trump is going to endorse Bernie. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, you, you could see that happening, couldn't you? I mean, it, it is encouraging though, isn't it? Uh, and I do really feel that if Bernie's able to win Iowa and New Hampshire, that it's very, it'll be very difficult for anyone to catch him. After I've, that. I've always thought he was going to win New Hampshire because he won it last time and by twenty points. <laughs> yeah, and there's a poll out recently showing him like way ahead. Uh, I was feeling, I just had a gut feeling that Iowa wasn't going to happen until like this week when I've seen these polls, and now I believe again. Um, and I was saying, sort of, as we were setting up for the show, like. I had got used to being in like a sort of comfortable second place and, and wasn't really daring to hope for more. Um, now Bernie's introducing me to the, the pain and joy of hope again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all signs good so far. Yeah. And if he wins, Iron New Hampshire, goes into South Carolina. And we'll, Nevada. Uh, Nevada. And he, I think he'll come second in South Carolina to uh, Biden, but he may well win Nevada. He's ahead in California and a bunch of the Super Tuesday states, which are the states... They all happen, what does it mark, like a month after? Yeah, it's a month or two. Um, a month uh, or a couple of weeks. After Iowa? Yeah. Um, they yes, all like... Yeah, early it, March. It, it's basically, there's the potential to steamroll really well. Um, and I think the real difference here, and particularly this primary season, is that uh, Bernie and his team in 2016 just did not think that they could win. Mm. Um, and they did not build the infrastructure. They did not build the people you need to do the kind of organizing that a socialist candidate needs to do. That co- that They call it canvassing. Terrible name. They like the door knocking they do. The conversations they have are about going and talking to people over an extended period of time. Yeah, um, and building those relationships over a long period of time, mm. which is our strategy of door knocking. And it's amazing that they can do that at the scale of a country like America. Yeah. Like, well, even the 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 target for the Iowa caucus on the third. Uh, February was 5 million calls and they blew past that with like two weeks to go so they're like oh yeah double it 10 million calls didn't they just run out of phone numbers to <laughs> yeah, call they yeah. are now, I've read an article this morning saying they're pivoting away from phone banking because they don't really have any more calls to make <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting though because they are trialling this thing called relational organising um, and there was a long article on Intercept about it which I linked to and I linked around up um, a couple weeks ago so, um, and it basically allows you it's like an app that allows you to like enter information about people you know <laughs> and then like but it's which is not publicly accessible um or anything like that but um it's yeah basically based on the model of trying to recruit and talk around people that you know personally not even necessarily friends like could, you know, friends maybe but honestly if all your friends aren't already voting for bernie like that's a problem um, fake friends yeah no they're, they're fake friends and maybe your family or maybe like you know your neighbours footy or teammates or footy teammates or people at the dog park or like people in your like if you have a um, community group that you're a part of that's not overtly political like trying to recruit those people um, and that's the first time I'm interested to see how this works because that's something I don't think even we have really even tried so it's basically like an app version of our conversation training 
yeah. events. Yeah. But I think the difference is, is like that you're not starting cold with a stranger. You're like trying to just well, the way they do it is you pop it in know. and they say to you, like the app, uh, the the burn app, um, like reminds you to get people to register to caucus or to vote in the primary. It reminds them to like, it reminds you to like, hey, send this video because like this person, you said they were really interested in this. They might be interested in this video about our Medicare for all policy. So it like helps you go through the process of having a persuasive conversation with your like family and friends mm. um, in a way that helps you build that real uh, connection as opposed to where you're at a stranger you're just have, trying to do it all at once and also trying setting. to guess the sort of issues that y- mm. the stranger cares about or trying to like you have to spend time getting to that whereas with your people you already know you might have an idea yeah it, it strikes me as something that would only really work at scale like yeah, when you've got like scale. millions of volunteers or hundreds at least hundreds of thousands of volunteers like Bernie does um, the burn app to me does just sound like a like bit like Tinder for like Bernie's <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 the other thing I like about Bernie's campaign this time around like in 2016 there was that famous moment where uh, he was like I'm goddamn sick of hearing about these goddamn emails in relation to, <laughs> and you know like pretty much like protecting Clinton during the primary against that email scandal stuff when I think ultimately that was a terrible mistake and he should have really gone for Hillary Clinton around that Nothing else on the line of like, do we really want to elect a nominee who's at risk of being torn apart on integrity scandals? But he's starting to be much more direct, in particular with Biden around all of his social security cuts and the fact that Biden spent the last 20 years like proudly declaring he'd work with Republicans to cut social security. Uh, And it seems to me like uh, that is also having a bit of a cut through, uh, which is impressive. Uh, And he's... uh, done a remarkable job of sort of calmly batting away a lot of the like bad faith attacks that have come from Warren and Biden etc and you know the media and the New York Times insane dual endorsement of Klobuchar <laughs> and Warren which is like the unendorsed like the non-endorsement of was both. that the the, the the picture you guys sent with the, like the, the the people standing on the women oh, on the shoulders and it was like yeah. Margaret Thatcher next to Rosa Park yeah. oh it was oh that yeah, was if, you if you haven't photo. seen that picture maybe we'll make it the picture of the show that blew my mind it's like, like a human pyramid of like shit. famous women throughout history is like this is how we win and it's got um, Liz Warren and Amy Klobuchar standing on the top and then under them are like layers of the other women Michelle Obama, Condoleezza Rice, Hillary Clinton, and then below that was like Rosa Parks next to Margaret Thatcher. Um, Gloria Steinem for some reason and Barbara Bush. (laughs) Yeah, Barbara (laughs) Bush. What the hell? I mean, sorry, what? (laughs) Anyway, so that's the kind of mind palace that they're in at the moment. And to me, um, more and more, I think just this primary showcases the emergence of two extremely separate elections, one of which is like being held online basically and which you know the overly online libs are completely like hate you know hate bernie want to ignore him um and love you know liz warren or klobuchar or whoever and are like really angry at bernie for doing things like um being endorsed by joe rogan the podcast guy but it's amazing because none of that seems to make any difference and it's just becoming more and more apparent that there's the wider electorate doesn't give a shit about that. Like the election that they're experiencing is something totally different and none of these attacks or talking points or scandals even barely even seem to touch them. No, and you know, Bernie's strategy really is, it's entirely predicated on getting people involved who otherwise don't pay attention to politics and are heavily disengaged with politics. Like his main 
uh, base of voters is they call low. You know, it's described in the polling companies in the United States as low information voters, essentially people who don't really pay attention to the media, don't often vote or rarely vote. Uh, aren't really Republicans or dem- self-described Republicans or Democrats. And essentially what you'd describe as like anti-political voters. And so if that is the strategy, there's two. that means two things. One, his support will be underrated in the polls because a lot of those polls are based on assuming that certain people vote or turn out to vote, which Bernie is changing. But two, those bad faith media attacks, people just don't even notice that they're happening or care that they're happening. And... I think the other thing that's really emerging for me, especially post Joe Rogan's endorsement and like a few randos on Twitter, like losing their minds, uh, is that one of Bernie's greatest successes I found is just fucking off like most of the left in the United States, the self-described left. Like he's got like a layer of brilliant organizers, but a lot of his people and supporters are just ordinary people who when engaged who have no way of passing or participating in the bizarre left subcultures that exist in America or UK. Well, it's the ruling liberal, like, organiser class yeah, that yeah, exists but, over there. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure a section of those have gotten behind Bernie, but with all his rallies, his forums, when people describe about the fuck things that are happening to them um, with regards to the healthcare system, it's just like, I just want these ordinary basic things to improve my life. And it's in like that rally speech where Bernie got up with AOC and was like, are you willing to fight uh, for someone next to you that you don't know just as hard as you'd fight for yourself? Like that is so beyond anything that sort of is hegemonic and left, left political culture in the moment, which is like has nothing to do with that sort of just base in base material solidarity, which is like regardless of the colour of their skin or their gender or whatever, you will fight for the person standing next to you, no matter who they are, just as much as you'd fight for yourself. And, you know, that one we've been talking about off before we started about that guy being like, hold, squeeze a hand if you like are willing to fight for like love. If you've like, ever like struggled to pay for a meal, like squeeze it, yeah. your, your neighbour's hand. And what's amazing about that is he's like building, He the, you watch the five minute video and it's like, that is universalist politics. It's like building a common experience. Can we cut that in? Because it's an amazing video. I'm going to ask you to be open to getting to know the human being to your left and your right. The human being that you've been fighting for, the human being that has been fighting for you, the human beings who form the most powerful movement in the history of electoral politics. So if you'll indulge me, I want you to kindly ask your neighbor, can I hold your hand? Okay, if you have permission and you're holding the hand, I want you all to close your eyes and just follow my instructions. Is that all right? If you've ever sat in a Planned Parenthood or a free clinic waiting alone, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer and prayed to God that you'd make it home, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever gone to war, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever gone to war with your mind, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever had to dodge a bill collector's incessant calls, please squeeze your hand. If you ever smoked a joint or a blunt while listening to your favorite artist, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been misgendered or judged for your identity, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever had to wake up at the crack of dawn to catch a bus or ride to visit a loved one behind bars, please squeeze your hand. 
And it is such a model for a political movement that we can build in Australia. And I think one of the few things that we need to start doing is just be like, all right, now, like most of the left, useless, has lost for the last 20 years, sucks a lot, is so introspective, so uh, like mostly based in like bizarre university terminology, etc., and things like that. And let's just get back to the stuff that allowed us to build the progressive move and left and radical and revolutionary movements were able in the 20th, 20th century to build enormous power based on recognizing that there's more that unites us than divides us. And when it comes, especially when it comes to existing in capitalist society, and it, and it's amazing. Bernie's campaign messages are so simple, and his strategy in some ways are so fucking simple. And it's like he's cut away all the bullshit, and is like, this is how you build power. And the, we're, we're watching the results. And if he is to win, and he's not shot on inauguration, yeah, day, that's which would be a fucking you know, miracle. He will be probably. Like a stronger heart attack gun. Attempt. That's yeah. definitely my darkest timeline prediction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my darkest actually is Bernie wins the nomination and loses to Trump. That's dark. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah, no, I don't, I, yeah, no, I don't think that'll happen. I think it's more likely he'll be assassinated. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's we'll one of those see. things where it's like, yeah, it's building that connection. It's just the way you actually deal with like things you want to change about an economy and society. Like the Joe Rogan thing is his past has like got some pretty horrific statements about a bunch of different things, including being transphobic. And it's like the only way you're going to ever going to deal with that is by connecting with people, making them get on board with your platform and not compromising any of your values. But how else are you going to get all these people on your side? Are you just going to take power and demand that they change their opinion? Or are you going to actually... No, drag just, them along to what you believe in. You're just going to guilt them until they finally adopt your correct work opinion. That is the way yeah. forward. But I, I think it was Shuja Haider um, on Twitter, maybe, or possibly someone else, um, who said that like this whole thing about Joe Rogan, who's someone I had sort of vaguely heard about. All I know is he's got a podcast with like a lot of um, listeners. Uh, anyway, he said like it just goes to show that most of these kind of um, liberals or like uh, uh, or PMCs or, you know, like the establishment people who hate Bernie are really afraid of mass politics. Like, they don't like ordinary people. No. Because, and they suspect them of having very unwoke views. Oh, absolutely, And yeah. they want Bernie to, like, apologise for potentially catering to those people or winning their support. It's such a good sign. Yeah. It, it is such a good sign that he is reaching out into areas that everyone else is, like, left of... Marginal left politics is feeling squeamish about. It's amazing. Like, when you look at the comments on the video of his, like, one-hour chat with Rogan on his podcast, like, you think about who the audience for Rogan's Mm. thing would be, and it's like, every second one, it's just like, I've changed my mind. Bernie's a good guy. Bernie's changed my mind. You know, like, I thought he was was crazy, but, you know, it turns out he's actually got some good ideas. Like, every second, if not more, comment was like, Bernie's changed my mind. And you watch the um, New York Times, is a contrast, is like you watch the New York Times in like... The Choice. <laughs> the Choice TV show. Yeah, the cho- oh my God. There were some good bits in it that I'm sure you know. Like the bre- old bread price fixing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You engaged in bread price Open the, the pod bay doors, how? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can't um, do that. But w- when Bernie's talking to them, because I watched like quite a lot of it, the video of him talking to them and read the transcript. And at multiple times, they're like, uh, they're like, basically take the line of like, mm, Trump gets lots of people to rallies and uh, so do you. Problem? You, is <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, do you <laughs> want to apologise for that? Or? Yeah, yeah, no. Trump then, also wins. If you win as well, does that not make you as bad as Trump? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the other Literally thing, they're, they're like, oh, how will you change anything when you get into power? 
And like, especially if you're not good at working across the aisle, like you're not very bipartisan and you're not centrist. So if you're not centrist, how will you like win over like the centrist people in Congress, et cetera, or the right wing Republicans in Congress. And it's remarkable because three or four times Bernie's like, look, no disrespect, but I just fundamentally don't think you understand. And I have just a compl- like <laughs> <You're an basic, idiot. laughs> a completely different strategy to anything that you could even comprehend is basically to paraphrase what Bernie <laughs> says. And he's like, I want to build, like, I want to go to Mitch McConnell's home state. And like, what I'll do is just hold a bunch of rallies, run heaps of door knocking and organizing and basically go to a bunch of Republicans and say, I will remove you and Democrats probably he'll need to like in the come the midterms I will t- turn all the unholy forces of fucking darkness on your state with my organizing machine and I will annihilate your political career or you can vote for Medicare for all your fucking choice and like that's the substance of him being the organizer in chief as well as the you know like commander in chief as he, you know his self-described organizer in chief just the c- concept of Bernie's like doubling or tripling his current campaign machine and then being able to just be like, hey, you know, like Nancy Pelosi, enjoying your like safe seat in some like democratic land. It's gone in two years if you don't fucking play ball. Like is such a... And you know, every time you like New York Times will just editors would listen to that and then ask the same question. And Bernie would be like, look, I don't want to have to repeat myself, but you, you don't understand. <laughs> <You're an idiot>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're dumb. <laughs> you fool. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we have any listeners who can do anything to uh, at all you know, weight, weight the result in, in Bernie's favour. Um, but Get send, online send him, and join the posting wars. Yeah, join the posting wars. That's probably all you can do. Send him your good vibes. Um, maybe, you know, think about donating some vital organs to him. All things you, that you can do. Do we have anything else to add or should we wrap it up there? It's been about an hour. Yeah. Good. Probably a little over. Good cast. Lots of good things. Lots of good uh, political activities you can get involved in. And I'm happy year. to, you know, skip the Bridget Delaney stuff because I don't know I, I try to look at her stuff and she's sort of I don't know without no Ryan here the you know Bridget Connoisseur yeah it's just, just like, it's been not the same and she's sort of gone off I feel like she's gone I don't know oil. yeah she's not as I don't know not as fun to read I mean well, she, she seems like she's busy like you put it very briefly in the the show notes it's like she's on a WhatsApp group of about 10 people and they have like compulsory so readings in, of ancient philosophers she got into so over the New Year's <laughs> like, over, the over the New Year's break apparently she got into stoicism yoga and um, uh, like a feminine group sort of thing but you know apart from the the stoicism was just sort of you know classic you know having a WhatsApp group discuss readings of stoicism. All those stoics, they love WhatsApp groups. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was just like, it was the only funny part. Even that wasn't that interesting. It was like, they were struggling to do the readings. As you do. And at the very end, it was like... Maybe that's um, the lesson, to be stoic in that. Yeah. (laughs) And the end, last paragraph was like, you know, go to WhatsApp, check the stoic group. Ivan has apologized for skipping ahead on the readings. (sighs) Group discussing whether stoicism allows for deep structural societal changes and revolutions. (laughs) (laughs) Which is obviously not, you know, it's like, okay, so you got that from stoicism, which is all about like individually looking at yourself and then trying to like make yourself numb to the outside bad externalities on yourself Whoa. is my reading. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think that's <laughs> what you're getting from that at all. I can all. tell you that a WhatsApp group uh, that has compulsory homework uh, is probably not the best way to do any of that. <laughs> well, to me, like Bridget's... Relational organising, Mark. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh. To me, Bridget's like, what's really missing here is the classic Bridget Delaney heading, subheading, like total incongruity. Like the one where it's like a 10 
foot snake is wrapped around my the door of my hotel room. What do you put in, snake? Exactly. <laughs> like the closest I could get was her complaining about people using her toothbrushes when they stayed at her house. Like that was the Bridget. Yeah, I know. She needs to step up her game. If you're listening, we want more of your signature insanity. Please bring it back. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. That's about it. Uh, Yeah, we'll be back in the next... In a month. Two weeks to a month. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.